and verse 17. And many people have asked, well, where are we going after the Ten Commandments? What are we doing next here? And uh, to answer that, it will be the very end of the Bible. It'll be the book of Revelation. Now, if you've uh, heard anything from the book of Revelation, you probably think of it as a book of the end, of future, of Christ's coming, and it certainly does speak to that. What you might be surprised to know is that Revelation is actually more about the present, about the now, that Christ has come, that He is the Lamb that was slain and has risen, and because of that, He is victorious over sin and Satan and the world and death, and He leads forth His people, those of us who belong to Him through faith by the grace of God, in victory over this world. And that is uh, an exciting book. Now, there is a lot of strange things, of course, that you read about dragons and, and uh, beasts and numbers, but all of that points to Christ who is victorious. And so we will enjoy looking into Revelation and that Christ has been revealed to us. But this morning, again, we are at the end of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. This is God's Word. Let us give it careful attention. The Bible says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We do ask now that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would give us understanding, that your spirit would speak to us and lead us and guide us into all truth so that we might follow you, that we might be faithful and obedient to you through the gospel of Christ our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, here we are. The last of the Ten Commandments, the final obligation in this covenant charter which God requires of His people, the Tenth Commandment. And it's pretty straightforward, just like the others, you shall not covet. But when you think about it, that seems kind of unemphatic. There isn't a lot of drama to this ending of the Ten Commandments. I mean, we started with these grand ideas of worshiping God alone and instructions on how we are to worship Him and that we are not to take Him lightly or take Him in vain because He alone is the self-existent, eternal deliverer of His people. And then we're given these big sweeping ideas of how we are to love one another as our, and love our neighbors well that we are to honor authorities, we are not to murder, we're not to commit adultery, we're, we're not to take that which is not ours, and we're not to destroy others through deceit. And after all of that, you would expect, well, there must be one big final commandment, one big final word from God to tie all of that doxology and all of that compassionate care of the second table of the law into one big sweeping statement. And what you get is, do not covet your neighbor's donkey. And it feels like, wow, what a way to end. And yet, this command, do not covet, 
really is the most fitting way to end the Ten Commandments. Because this idea of coveting or not coveting does point to all the commandments. It ties everything together. All the other commandments on the surface deal with external actions, sins that we commit against God and against others that you can point at and see. Now, as we've learned, they do go much deeper than just those surface sins. They speak to our hearts. But they start on the surface, and then they invite us to dig deeper. But this 10th commandment, it does all the digging for us. It pierces right to the human heart. And in doing that, it tears away all of our self-righteousness. And you could say that the 10th commandment gets to the heart of the other nine. We don't worship God alone as we ought because we covet other gods. We don't worship God in the way He wants because we covet our own way of relating to Him. We don't take God seriously as we ought because our hearts are divided by all the other things we want in our lives. We don't honor and respect those God ordains over us because we covet their position and power. We don't regard the life of our neighbors as we ought because we covet the lives they live. And on and on it goes. And so let us then consider what this last commandment teaches us about God. And what it instructs us in how we are to live in the light of who He is and what it reveals concerning our fallen human hearts and the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we learn from the very last commandment is this, is that God has created us with a desire to know Him. We are created to desire God above all other things. Coveting speaks of desire. In fact, the Hebrew word translated to covet literally means to desire, to wish, to long for, to crave. It speaks of a strong desire for something. It's an action, a goal-oriented word. This desire to possess something. Now, we know that not all desires are sinful. And not all desires, even for the things that we have in this world, are sinful. Wanting things is not covetousness. Covet, coveting isn't desiring things. Rather, it's desiring the wrong things. It's a consuming desire for something that belongs to another person. It's a sinful desire. But there are good desires, and God has created us with those desires when we're thirsty, we desire a drink. When we're hungry, we desire to eat. It is not wrong, furthermore, to desire to eat a steak over a salad or to have coffee with breakfast instead of just a glass of water. We are created with desires. Even sexual desires are not sinful when they are, find themselves in the confines of a healthy marriage relationship. It is not sinful to desire a better job than perhaps the one you have or a more rewarding career. In fact, you go to the book of Proverbs and what we find are instructions to, to work hard, to work diligently, to try to improve your life. 
Having things and owning property are not forbidden. As we learned back when we considered the commandment to not steal, ownership of things is a sacred right that was created by God. It is good then to desire the good things that God provides us in this life because our desires are designed ultimately to drive us to desire God above all things. They're designed to drive us to God's provision. And when we recognize that we have needs, that we have cravings, that there are things which we do desire in this world, we're to consider first and foremost that God is our creator and our provider. He has created us uh, to be fulfilled ultimately in Him. And so the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And Jesus, of course, said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Yes, we're to be satisfied ultimately in God. And the sense of God's provision in human desire depends upon Him to provide for us. When God created Adam and Eve, He gave them, of course, everything they absolutely needed, everything that they desired, not only, though, to survive, but to actually enjoy life in this world. So you go to Genesis 2, 9, and we read there that out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. You see that? So we have this desire, this need for food. God provided every plant for that, but it wasn't just to provide for that need, that desire for food. We have a desire to enjoy beauty, to see it, to marvel at it. And so every tree is also, as we read there in Genesis, pleasant in sight. God's given us beautiful things to look at and to enjoy He provides rivers and mountains, the joy and delight of His good creation. I mean, have you ever stood on the the shore of a lake or an ocean and just taken a deep breath and savored this amazing world that God has made around you? I mean, we desire those things. Or have you ever walked through the woods in the fall and you're just amazed and awed by the tapestry of color that God has painted in His creative power. Yes, we have a desire to see those things, to enjoy that beauty that He has made. We want to taste the sweetness of an orange and be refreshed by a cup of cold water because God's provided us with these desires so that we might be satisfied in Him and know Him. And when we do, when we are satisfied, our hearts are moved to thanksgiving and worship. Augustine wrote in his confession, To praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir up man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. 
It's similar to what we read from the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Yes, God has created us with desires, and those desires are meant to drive us to desire God above all other things. And so how do we do that then? Well, we do it through the way that this commandment instructs us. We are to desire God more than those things for which we long. That's at the heart of this commandment, to not covet. Don't desire the wrong things in the wrong way and at the wrong time, but let your desires be informed by an overall desire to know God and to glorify Him. Coveting is designed, or the the prohibition to not covet is designed to safeguard the glory of God that we seek Him alone. So we have to ask then, what is coveting? How do we do this? What are the sins that are, are forbidden? And what are the implied duties we get from this commandment that this commandment teaches us? Well, first of all, let's consider those sins that are prohibited by this commandment. The larger catechism, the Westminster larger catechism, I believe, has a helpful summary of them. Listen to this. It says, the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections of anything that is his. And there's really three things there in that summary, so let's break them down. First of all, coveting is discontentment with what God has given us. It's a dissatisfaction with God's providence. It's when a person questions God's wisdom about the current circumstances of life. And discontentment with God then creates this howling emptiness in the soul from which it comes. And it drives one to fretting and complaining and a desire to have what others have in an unlawful way. For example, discontentment with one's spouse that God has given can lead to looking to another person in an impure, immoral way. Dissatisfaction with where one is at in life in terms of their economic position could lead a person to seek to get what they want through harming others. See, cheating, conflict, theft, anger all flow from a covetous discontentment with what God provides. Again, we're not talking about a good desire to improve our lives, to be successful, but we're talking about an ungodly desire that says, I deserve better, so I will take what I can for myself. Rather than thinking of the good of one's spouse, children, parents, family, friends, or neighbors, the coveting heart says, how I feel is what I want, and what makes me happy is the most important thing in this life. Now, a second way that we covet, besides discontentment with what God has given us, is by envying the good of our neighbors, what God has given other people. The commandment reads, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And the word for house in Hebrew, of course, can mean a physical building. 
an actual structure in which a person lives, but it also is taken figuratively to mean a household, which seems to be the meaning here in verse 17 of Exodus 20. Because God goes on to list, do not covet your neighbor's wife or servants or donkey. And then just so that nothing is left out, he says, and do not covet anything that is your neighbor's, his entire household, everything he owns, everything he knows, everything that belongs to him, don't covet that. And so, of course, that would include a physical home, but it also includes his or her job and their, their spouse and their kids or their very way of life. And so in the Old Testament, a person who was part of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, they were not to envy the success of the family next door. They weren't to look at their herd of goats or their flock of sheep or their fields of barley and think, if only my field was like that, or if only my herd was as big as theirs. Or if we want to put it in our context, Envy says, well, if I only had my neighbor's car, or their career, or their yard, or the vacations they get to take, or the raises they might get at work, or the better grades they have in class and school, everything they have. If I only had that, my life would be better. If only I was a different age, if I was a little bit older or maybe younger, or if, I was, if only I was a different gender, if only I had different looks, if only I was married, or if only I was single again, or if only I had children, or if only I didn't have the children I have, if only fill in the blank. I mean, have you ever seen somebody else blessed with success and felt a tinge of je jealousy or maybe even bitterness toward them because you wish it was you? That's envy. That's covetousness. That's breaking the 10th commandment. There's a third way we break this commandment that the larger catechism speaks of, and it says the inordinate motions of our hearts. Well, what is that? <laughs> it is the excessive desire of our hearts towards those things that God prohibits. It is the movement, the motion of the heart, an inward temptation to want those things that God says are sinful to you. It's exactly what Paul speaks of when he writes in Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. And then he lists it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the old word that you might hear of or read of if you read uh, books on uh, Bible studies or books on theology, the old word that speaks of these temptations is concupiscence. In fact, you'll find that in, if you have a King James Version, you'll find this word concupiscence translated uh, to mean evil desires. Now, our Roman Catholic friends claim that concupiscence itself, these desires, are not sinful. But the Bible is very clear, as we just saw in Paul's words, that even those fallen desires themselves of our heart, those desires are sin before God. 
Now, external temptations that we face, those are not sinful. They are without us. But the internal movement of the heart, the internal temptations that come from our hearts, those certainly are corrupted by sin. And that's what covetousness is. That is what is forbidden by the Tenth Commandment. But what does the commandment then require? Well, again, I find the larger catechism helpful in the summary that it gives of what the Bible teaches. So the duties required in the Tenth Commandment are full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto the furtherance of all that is good for him. Now, there are two things I think we see there. Firstly, instead of discontentment, a contentment with our own condition. Now, by that, we do not mean a raw fatalism that, well, you just accept the way things are in your life. That's not what we mean. In fact, when things are hard, when we suffer those difficult providences, we are instructed by the Bible to pour out our hearts to God. Jeremiah Burroughs, who is a Puritan, explains that contentment is not opposed to a due sense of affliction, nor a, a making in an orderly manner our moan and complaint to God and our friends, nor is contentment opposed to all lawful seeking for help in different circumstances or endeavoring to be delivered out of our present afflictions. Those are good things to desire and want, calling out to God for deliverance from our suffering. And once again, the Scriptures do teach us to, to seek to improve our lives. That is not sinful. But what contentment actually is, is simply wanting what God wants for us. It's singing with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. That's affliction. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, contentment's a matter of faith. It's trusting that God is sovereign and wise and knows what is best for you and that He will provide and sustain you through this life according to His loving and gracious provision. And so when we sin by coveting, what we're actually doing is telling God that His grace isn't enough, that He isn't big enough, that He isn't powerful enough, wise enough, or caring enough But contentment, the opposite of covetousness, trusts God. It believes the word of Jesus who said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much of much more value are you than the birds? So contentment with our condition is a duty that this commandment requires of us, of trusting God with what He gives. And the second duty then, 
flows from that, and that is charity towards our neighbor. So that all of those inward motions of our heart, our affections, desires good for them. You see, when we're content with what God has provided us and we're trusting His wisdom, His goodness in our life, we can be charitable towards others, so much so that we desire God's goodness to be manifested in their lives. And so when you see a colleague at work who is blessed with that promotion that you wanted, while you certainly can be disappointed that you did not get it, you also rejoice that they have been blessed. If you're single and a friend of yours gets engaged, you rejoice with them. And you trust that God will provide you a spouse. And Jesus takes this idea of showing charity towards others out of a heart of contentment that trusts God even further. He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. You see, only a heart that is content in God who trusts His wisdom and His sovereignty and His plans and His providences and rejoices in the blessings they do have, only that kind of heart is able to bless those who would curse you. And so to sum it all up, the Tenth Commandment instructs us to not be discontent with what God is giving us, not to envy the good of others, of, the, of our neighbors, our friends, our families. It instructs us that even the desires of our heart are sinful. And so we should be content then with what God provides for us by trusting Him and from that contentment show love, charity towards our neighbors and desire what is best for them. Now, when you ponder all of that, just like with all the other commandments in these Ten Commandments, those prohibitions against sin and those duties that we are required to do, they confront once again our wayward human hearts. And they shine the light of God's holiness and truth into every corner of those hearts where we try to hide in our own self-righteousness. And perhaps... More than all the other commandments, this final one leaves us with nowhere to run because it shows us that even our own desires have been touched or corrupted by sin. It confronts us with this truth, is that our sinful deeds that we do when we break all the commandments come from sinful desires. Here's a biblical example. When God sent the people of Israel into the land of Canaan to conquer it and take possession of it. He instructed them not to take of any of the spoils, the riches of the land. These were devoted to destruction by God. And the reason for that was to show the nations of the world that these things, these treasures, this wealth, which was very much tied to idolatry, were under His judgment. And it was also to encourage Israel to continue to trust the Lord's providence. They didn't need to partake of these things because God would provide what they needed. And when God's people obeyed His voice, they were blessed with victory. But at Ai, town of Ai, they suffered a 
devastating defeat. And Joshua, who was leading Israel, wondered what has gone wrong. And he goes to the Lord and he says, what happened? Why did we lose? You promised to give us this land. What's going on here? And the Lord reveals to him that, well, within the camp of Israel, there was a man by the name of Achan who had taken that which was forbidden to take. And so Joshua confronts him about what he had done. And listen to Achan's reply to Joshua. He says, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, and I coveted them, and I took them, and they're hidden inside the earth under my tents. You see, Achan coveted what he wasn't supposed to have. It it started with a desire, and that desire led his hands to commit those sinful deeds. I mean, think about it this way. He broke the Tenth Commandment first. He wanted these things. He coveted these things, and that led him then to break the Eighth Commandment, to steal which was not his, and then to break the Ninth Commandment, to, to hide it under his tent in a deceitful way. Achan's heart sinned first, and it led his hands to sin indeed. See, we are not sinners because we commit sinful acts, though that is what we do. We are sinners because we have sinful hearts. And we actually sin and do sins because we have sinful hearts. We're not born innocent but guilty because in Adam all have sinned and thus have this corrupt heart from which these actual sinful deeds flow. And as we noted earlier, even the motions of the heart are sinful. Listen to what James says in James 1. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, But he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, the root of our problem with all of these Ten Commandments is that we have hearts which desire all the wrong things because we don't desire God as we should. And that is what the last commandment, the tenth commandment, confronts us with. And this seems especially true to those who outwardly seem to have everything together. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, this last commandment is addressed not to those who the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they've not offended against the preceding commandments. You see, coveting is so deadly because it destroys the one who is outwardly moral. The Apostle Paul understood this. He, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, was really good at keeping the outward law. 
But you know what it is that brought conviction to Paul to show, them that, show him that he really wasn't righteous, that he needed the righteousness of Christ? It was the 10th commandment. He writes in Romans 7, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Yes, our sinful deeds do come from sinful hearts, from sinful desires. But thanks be to God, because He knows our hearts, and He knows that we need new ones if we are ever to be fully content in Him. And that is exactly what He does. He cuts away these corrupt, fallen hearts of stone and gives us a new living heart of flesh as we turn to Christ in faith and repentance. You see, we receive this new heart when we look to Jesus, the Christ of the commandments. And the promise that is preached to us from this 10th commandment, the gospel promise is this, is that Jesus was fully content to do the Father's will so that we can be content in Him. Jesus said in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You see, the Father's will for the Son was that the Son would suffer in order to gain. And Jesus was content with that will. He was content to be fashioned in the form of sinners like you and I, yet without sin. He was content to live as a servant that he might serve many. He was content to suffer, to hunger, to thirst, and to not be quenched even as he hung upon the cross. He was content to die the death of a criminal though he had committed no crime. He was content to take upon himself the sins of, of those for whom he died. And he was content to suffer all the wrath of God for those sins that they deserved, though he deserved it not. He was content to do all of that for people like you and me who harbor covetousness in our hearts, who do not desire God as we should. He was content to do that. And because he was, Jesus gained which is rather ironic because covetousness is all about trying to gain more and more. But it is never satisfied. In the end, as we saw there in James, it leads to death. But Jesus' contentment to suffer on the cross and to actually go to the grave, yet rise the third day, brings about life eternal life, and the forgiveness of sins for those who would trust Him. Yes, Jesus gained. He gained an inheritance of nations, an inheritance of those whom He has redeemed, a people who belong to God forever and ever, a people that have been delivered from their own sinful desires. And that inheritance is ours as well when we are united to Christ by faith and we are content in Jesus. You see, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Yes, 
we can have true contentment. Do you want that rest? Do you want that true satisfaction that comes from being content in Christ? Then desire Him. Desire Him above all the other things that this world offers you. Desire the Christ of the commandments. And the blessing of these Ten Commandments is yours in Jesus. The covenant promises of God are yours, fulfilled in Christ. And so be content in Him by going to Him in faith. Let us pray.